available on iTunes, Stitcher, and PantelisComedy.com. It's the Pantelis Podcast. Marty Young. Pantelis. Welcome. It's about time. Thank you. I'm so happy to be here. Paul Provenza. Yes, sir. I'd like to say that I'm lucky to have you here, but it feels more like an honor to oh, have you here. Very kind. This is a big day. This you're is going to be. Kind. It just it goes to show you how busy I am. You are a busy guy. <laughs> are you a busy guy now? Are you keeping busy? I'm a busy guy with not much to show for it. Well, you do. You have a legacy, sir. <laughs> a legacy. You have a legacy. That's big. <laughs> just the okay. The set list now stuff is great, but just the green room, just what you left behind. Uh, those videos. That's something important culturally. For comedy, right? And even now, what you're doing, you said the live show that you're going to do uh, yeah, here just Saturday for the last night, two yeah. days. That's huge for comedy. We need, we need, this is when we need you, right? Now it's this time when political correctness is taking over, when um, cr- crazy billionaires are uh, are taking control of nations. Uh, this is when we need people like you. Well, you know, it's interesting because uh, when I started doing the Green Room, which I started doing at the Edinburgh Fringe, I, I, I d- started developing it there. And, and even though it, it, it is essentially just a bunch of people sitting around talking, uh, uh, it really involved a lot of development because I really wanted to make it authentic and I wanted it to really feel like the way comics really talk to each other when there is no audience there, you know. And, 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 and so it, it actually is really, it's like getting pandas to mate in captivity, you know. Everything's got to be just perfect. So there was a lot of development involved in it. Um, but I, I also... Part of it was just to sort of recreate that experience of what it's like to really hang out with people who think all the time, who are funny, not necessarily all the time, but they are funny. And I think comedy is more of a lifestyle than anything else. Yep. Yes. I think like, you know, if you're a real comedy fan or somebody who does comedy uh, or you respond to comedy in the way that a lot of us do uh, just as, a, as, as fans of it, it's kind of a lifestyle choice. It's yeah. kind of like, you know... You just come from a different place. You kind of look at the world a little bit skewed. You don't buy into a lot of bullshit. You tend to see bullshit a little more. You tend to, you know, you could be wrong just as much. You're accepting of other people's But bullshit. your attitude is a little bit different. I, I think it is a way of living in the world. Oh, it definitely is. That um, I always thought that if people could see comedians in a, a format that, that is just really natural for them, they can start to see that, oh, there is a whole different way of existing in the world that, you know, maybe we can all avail ourselves of, you know. Uh, So I did kind of feel like, yeah, the fact that comedians can argue bitterly about politics or race or anything, but it's not... It's it's not really confrontational. I mean, it is the ideas get confrontational, but people laugh together, yeah. and you go, "That's what's." There is no place else where you can do that. You can't do it in journalism. You can't do it in academia. You can't do it in jurisprudence. There is no other arena where you can really just speak the truth and and take responsibility for what you say, but not not be despised for it. You know, because you've made it funny, and you've and you've you've at least opened people up to hear the idea in a way that is uh, somehow they can manage to get their heads or hands around it. You know what I mean? Yeah. So without that really being the intent of the green room, that's what happened. Like when we did the series for Showtime, some real heavy shit got said, you know? And when we had Paul Mooney and Bobby Slayton going at it, and Bobby Slayton just being really, you know, poking Paul Mooney all I mean, over yeah, the place. Yeah, he just kept ripping and, him with... Rip- yeah, and Paul Mooney would come back and rip back the other way. It was like... Holy shit! Shit was said about race that is just true for a lot of a lot of people feel in all these different ways about it, and and they were actually talking about it instead of it being you know a taboo, 
And I think that's what comedy can do is just just let's talk about the ideas and not beat each other up. Let's laugh together about them, for fuck's sake, and maybe we can actually hear some of it. <laughs> so that's kind of what, you know, uh, it was a side effect of the green room thing. But the real impulse of the green room was just let's just get some really funny, smart people who are thoughtful you know, uh, uh, they, they, they we're, comedians have a lot of time to think about a lot oh, of yeah. shit. So it's worth listening to them, you know. And here's the other thing about comedians that makes them more than just, you know, pop culture fluff or cotton candy is that they, um, they also, they don't care. They don't care what you think. You know, most comedians have become comedians because they've carved some path where they don't care what... They don't care that people make fun of them. They don't care that whatever. I mean, it's like they were, they were outsiders right from the get-go, so they just embraced it instead of, you know, struggled with it. Um, uh, and uh, comedians also, you know, they travel the world. They travel the world talking to not heads of state, not, you know, uh, business people, not to regular people. So they have a real sense of what the real people who have at least the people who have enough money to go to a comedy show, and that can be anything from five bucks to 150 bucks, you know, if you're Jerry Seinfeld. But the point is that they they go around the world talking to real people. Their audiences are real, an amazing cross section of real people. So they have a sense of you know boots on the ground, if you will, sense of what people are really feeling and thinking. You know, John McCain or you know any other politician doesn't have to relate in the same way when he's given a speech. A comedian has to really understand who you are and what you're about as a society to make that connection, to be a part of it, for them to be reflected in you, by you in some way, or for them to feel like you're speaking for them in some way. I mean, there's all those things that are really abstract and hard to really articulate, but the point is there is no politician, there's nobody in any position of power economic power or political power on earth that understands average humanity better than a human uh, better than a comedian a hundred percent agreed you see that's what i'm saying that's why right now that voice that voice that voice of reason that voice of logic (coughs) and also the voice of free speech that's kind of what we're doing which is i don't even know what free speech means anymore now there's a whole movement of free speech that means no free speech yeah that's, that's the thing it's out of control i don't know where to draw the line right everybody and it's I understand some people are going to uh, are going to get offended by things that are said, but I've had issues in comedy clubs where it feels like people come in with the intention of finding something yeah. that's going to piss them off. Yeah, and there's a lot there's a lot in that too, you know. I mean, part of it is 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 laudable. I mean, there's a righteous aspect to, you know what? Let's stop treating other humans, whatever the, whatever whoever they the given subject is in any given moment, let's stop treating them like they don't deserve to, you know, to be like. There's something different about them that they're not human. That they that that. Let's stop, you know, uh, reinforcing the 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 structures that keep them marginalized. All that sort of stuff. And that's all completely laudable. But at the same time, you know, you're right. There are people who have made it their social justice warrior mission to just shut everybody down that they don't agree with, and you know, it's weird because. It's weird to see that stuff happen to comedians because they're just telling jokes. They don't yeah. have any power. They can't make a difference. And I always say, like, all the people that storm out of whoever's show for whatever offensive thing they did, like, like, why don't you take that time and energy and actually address social injustice on, you know, on the institutional level? Like, why don't you take all that energy? But, you know, it gives people a real sense of, 
of of power to sit in their underwear at three o'clock in the morning online and yeah, I got my burr, I made my statement and now everybody knows where I stand and they feel like they're contributing and in a sense they are but not like they think they are. I don't like when they <laughs> fight to to either get comedians to lose shows or this because as a comedian I, I love saying and what Richard I want to say. Richard Dawkins was just deplatformed of speaking somebody because because he's so anti-religion. That, Good. That, that that is offensive to all the people of various religions. But and doesn't like, like, it... like, like at some point you got to go. The balance is yeah. off here. I understand the intent to not you know alienate and and to, and and to embrace everybody, but what happens is everybody has their own idea of what that is. And you know, for you to hear Richard Dawkins talk about religion and say that that's you know hate speech, not at all against a particular group, is like well. What do any of these terms mean anymore, and when does it become irrational? They're just throwing them around, because Dawkins, for example, that's logic, all right? And anybody who tries to go really logical is going to find problems in religion, yeah. right? Who, who the fuck are we kidding, yeah. right? If you're using your brain, you're like, yeah, there's holes in this, right? Yeah. So why is he a bad guy? And he's just an example, because you brought him up right now. But in general, the way they're working this is if you don't agree with me, which could be all right, let's say we don't agree. As a comedian, my first thought is if I don't agree with you, that's fine. We'll argue about it, we might laugh about it, we might even grab a beer later. But I'm never going to try to block you from saying what you believe, even though it's different from mine. Right. We find that an alien concept. That's why it always shocks me when I see people fighting. This person shouldn't be allowed to perform at clubs anymore because they offended me. Whoa, hold on a fucking second. You're one in an audience of 130. <laughs> yeah, 129 yeah. other people didn't have well, an issue with Bill, it. Bill but, Burr was saying is that, you know, it's one person who took offense who writes a blog that gets picked up by some other, you know, thing that pushes the blog. And, you know, everybody's got their own agenda. When it gets, goes out there and all of a sudden, you know, you come home from a show that you thought went perfectly fine and the audience loved it and everything went great and then all of a sudden the next day is a firestorm because one person's blog got picked up you know it's crazy it's like it's like yeah it is crazy and and it's just i don't understand why people have such a difficult time seeing art also there's never been a time in the history parameters. where we can so quickly express our opinion to so and many anonymously people, right? yeah and that's anonymously. the big yeah. thing yeah um, that's I, the biggest thing I've struggled with that a lot, like blogging, especially in short content like I do. And so I've developed kind of this idea of, um, is it kind? Is it necessary? Is it true? And I find if I have one of or two of those elements in it, um, and of course truth is subjective, um, but I feel I always take the, um, that we do have this platform to express ourselves and what you can do is is you can commemorate the unarguably wonderful parts of the night. Well, here's now, the thing, I, though. There is nothing more subjective than irony, and that's the problem. It's true. Yep. Is that, that uh, as my friend, the genius, comic genius Rick Overton puts it, he goes, it's time to download Irony 2.0. Oh, and people haven't yeah. figured out uh, that yet. And it's, uh, you know, you can't... Irony is like... like uh, there are people who who have as difficult a time understanding irony right as there it. are people who are tone deaf in music or colorblind oh, or say it's like a perception problem, yeah. you know? And it's like, that's a big part of it too. And now they they have a voice too and their voice is skewed by their particular perception issues. But it's amazing how, how people really... I, and I don't understand. It's like, you know, I, I don't see people going to movies going, oh, that movie was, a, you know, horrible. That character that killed those women, raped those women, killed those you know, we, we should never go see this movie because there's a guy in there who rapes women. Go, well, the, like, it's a story. Yeah. 
You know, you don't and see them don't boycotting see, that actor, and it's a weird place that comedy falls in because we do have a very personal interaction with the audience, and and most of the best comedians, their their real audience kind of feels a, some sort of a connection with them on a personal level, but it is still just art, and and it, I think that's a tough distinction for people, and like Sarah Silverman is a very interesting case because Sarah Silverman, is, she's doing a character. Yeah. She's been doing a character from day one, and it's such a well-honed, nuanced character that you can barely even see the irony in it if you have the slightest bit of tone deafness to irony at all. And I don't think but, she gives know, any fucks either at this point. She's well past the giving up fucks. She does what she wants. Yeah, and it's it's brilliant. It's brilliant. And all she's doing is she what she's doing actually is satire of the most pure kind in, in the way that Stephen Colbert was doing that when he was doing yeah, before he switched Colbert, to, yeah. Colbert report, you know, he, he just put out the, the stupid idea that you want to be satirized, the stupid person that you want to mock and let them make it self evident, you know, and that's what Sarah is doing. This, uh, this self obsessed narcissistic kind of, which is kind of a comment on so much of society right now, not even just, you know, any particular individuals. So I think it's kind of brilliant, but if you don't understand or if you can't comprehend the irony of it, it's horrible. So, you know, how can you even factor that in? How can you factor in people who don't get it? Downloading irony is a very, I wish it was possible, because yeah, <laughs> so many things, you're, you try to explain that to somebody, especially if you bring a mere mortal to a comedy show. Uh, I, um, Marty, grab the mic. Sorry. Um, yeah, three fingers, it, three fingers. <laughs> Um, yeah, and you're just like, how can I explain irony? But but let's go in this direction. What about a time? Have you ever have you guys ever seen a set where you're like, wow, you are are using comedy to hide bigotry, like you, like. Look, I've... Uh, well, look, you know what? I'm sorry. I didn't mean no, to interrupt I, you. but I, I, you, I, I want to hear what you're going to say. Well, it's important to look at what the response has been to Dave Chappelle's recent Netflix specials. You know, uh, Dave Chappelle got a lot of flack for his uh, stuff about uh, gays. Uh, transgender. Transgender yeah, yeah. and all that sort of stuff. And is it fair? Is it not fair? Is it revealing a real point of view? Is it not? Is it endorsing a point of view? I don't know. These, but these are pretty nuanced questions, and I'm not sure what the answers to them are. Um, but I always fall back on what Patrice O'Neill used to say. Patrice O'Neill, who is one of the all-time greats. I mean, when we lost Patrice, we lost a yeah. serious bright light. And uh, of truth. Patrice used to say, here's the thing. I say some of these things because they're things that I feel. And he goes, I'm not necessarily proud of them, and I'm not necessarily saying that everybody should agree with them, but they're what I feel, and that's what I'm talking about. And, and that's the question. You know that comes to play with with that that particular questionable stuff on on Chappelle's shows is like we know that Chappelle is Chappelle. We know that he's he's been in this arena uh, for a long time and he's been extraordinary at it. And I don't think that Chappelle is a hateful person. I don't think he's a bigoted person. I'm sure he's got homosexuals around him. You know, whenever he's in a comedy club, there's homosexuals around him somewhere. I, I don't think that he has a problem person, on a personal level with this. But he might feel these things. He might see the world this way. And he's putting it out there. And that's an opportunity for discourse. 
And I don't think that people should be shut down for speaking about the things that they feel when they have the courage to put it out there. I mean, he's not talking about going around bashing people. He's not talking around, you know, but that's what he's feeling is not, he's not alone in it. Even if, again, I can't tell if he's really feeling this or if he's pushing, you know, pushing some, uh, poking some people in the eye with this material. I don't really know. And we can't really get in, in his mind and we have to trust the art more so even than the artist. But when I look at it, I go, the conversation around this is, is, is valuable and there's a lot of people who feel exactly the way he feels. So uh, should he be responsible for putting out there what he feels and telling a, a truth that may be unpleasant? I don't know. It's You know, I think he gets a lot more seems, credibility like than sliding, somebody you never heard of before. You know what I mean? It's a lot easier of a sell if it when it's funny. Right, and so that's a prime example. Like Dave Chappelle, it was a masterful return to his craft that we'd all been waiting for a long time. And those jokes, however, um, like the subject matter's risky, but he, that's Chappelle. That's his brand, right? Um, it's always been risky, and uh, what? But it's masterfully done comedy. Yeah. So, um, but there is sometimes where people all they have is those opinions, and they they want them to exist as comedy and it's th because they don't have the craft. I, I, again, I don't know. And the only, the only place I can rest on this is everybody should be able to say whatever the fuck they want. Yeah. And then we'll have to determine oh, it I, on a case by case. If somebody's I not, don't know. I, 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 it's, it's very existential stuff. I feel like if you're not funny and you can't be a comedian, you can't make your thoughts that might be controversial, might be taboo, you can't make them funny, Yeah, you won't get booked, you won't be a comedian for that long anyway, right? If people won't pay to come see you. So that shit's going to die out by itself, right? It's going to... But the only people that I see do what you're talking about, I've seen open micers do it, yeah. where they get on stage, I've seen some open micers here, and it's just, it's not a racist joke, it's just racist statements, and they're expecting gas for laughs and they get nothing, they just get silence from the audience. But they're new, they're trying to find their voice, and they're like, maybe this will get people talking. But you see a seasoned comedian, rarely does it happen. You'll find the odd bloggers that get really offended. But in general, there's a craft to it. Even what Chappelle did, I liked yeah. his new specials. Oh, I'm and, not, I'm, and what I he did, what there was, yeah, there might have been some kind of point of views where he thinks maybe um, the transgender community are getting certain rights, are getting ahead a bit quicker than what they should if you look at other social issues. and other. Maybe it's coming out there, but he is still putting his point of view out in joke form, making it funny, making it enjoyable, as opposed to going out there and just spewing hate speech. But he's getting treated as though he's going out there spewing hate speech. It was masterfully done. The, well, here's, uh, the I, I, really, here's the really interesting thing, is his point of view on all that stuff is the point of view of a lot of Trump voters. Which is interesting. And if you don't think there's something fascinating about David Chappelle... The Venn diagram of Dave Chappelle and Trump voters, <laughs> where they intersect. If you don't think that's fucking fascinating and riveting, I, I, I don't know. I guess we won't have much no. more conversation. And it is amazing. <laughs> it, it is amazing. That's such a good point that you brought up. Because you're right. That he, he, That's something to be studied. But instead... I, yeah, it's so fascinating to me. No, what I always... To the mic, Marty. To the mic. Sorry. You what, I <laughs> what I find interesting about Dave Chappelle is how he was allowed to just become so famous again. Allowed. His, his uh, you know, well, you know what I mean. There was no, it. W he was just back. 
His return was iconic. Well, there was no yeah. like there was no struggle for him to come back. Yeah, you know well, what because I mean? he left at such a high point. Yeah, you know. But also, it, it's it's not a hundred percent true that he just disappeared. Like he didn't go and live in a hut on a, on a deserted <laughs> island all the time. He's been working out at clubs for a long, long time. And in fact, I saw him uh, uh, do a show in Los Angeles, um, which was the first of his shows that I'd been to, where they made you check your cell phones. And he came out, and he said it was an unbelievable show. Chris Rock uh, came on and did some time. My favorite uh, of all it was, time. It was an amazing lineup of people, um, but the vibe in the room was so great. And what he did when he came out to do his set was he thanked everybody for, and he thanked the people who provided the the you know the inserts that they they, they would you'd actually check your phone, they put it in. Uh, some sort of a, a a bag or some sort yep. of a folder that would that kept you know signal out so no phones would ring or anything like that. They couldn't get a signal in the bags, and and everybody checked their phone like that. And so he had been working with this company that that, that was doing this, this group that was doing this. So he thanked them profusely, and then he said, "Let me explain to you what's going on here." He goes, "I'm going to do something. We're going to do something tonight that uh, some of you have never done." Some of you probably remember doing in the past, and this will be a, a bit of a trip down memory lane for you, but what we're going to do here tonight is we're going to have an experience together, and it's just going to stay here. You're not going to see it anywhere. You're not going to hear it anywhere. There's not going to be any pictures of it that you took on your phone. Nobody's going to take any video of it. We're going to have an experience that is just this moment, and that's it. And... As a result, everybody in the audience and on the stage were so liberated that it was fantastic. It was just fantastic. I can't even put into words what made that night so great, but a lot of it had to do with the way Dave framed it, which is, this is it. This is a moment right here, right now. This he is goes, yours. He goes, you tell anybody what happened on stage here tonight, we'll deny it, and <laughs> you, there's no way you can prove it. And he goes... That's something that some of you have never experienced in your entire lives. Wow. And it just blew me away. It went, so how simple and clean and pure a manifesto that was for a show. And yeah. he'd been doing that quite a bit. So he's been doing some interesting stuff in this time where he supposedly wasn't doing anything. That's a cultural contribution. Just that sentence. Yes. Just I thought so. I thought it was great. That is incredible. And you see, that's the kind of stuff that gets overlooked. That's the kind of shit that gets overlooked nowadays. And yet you'll get Viners who posts fart videos. And, and he had Tony get... <laughs> Hinchcliffe on the show, and Tony Hinchcliffe did a Bill Cosby piece that was so brilliant and so funny that if anybody had put it online, Tony Hinchcliffe would be supporting rape, Tony Hinchcliffe oh, would do this, that, this, that, this. And of course, it wasn't any of that. But, you know, it was... I like, he had a I like great set, by the way. Speaking of Tony Hinchcliffe, he had God, a great set on that. He's, yeah, he's, he is so oh dark. It's God. gorgeous, right? Yeah, it's, Because he doesn't look it when, no, you, when, right? when that oh shit comes God. out of his mouth. Yeah. Yeah, he's, he's great. Oh, he's yeah. great. This, this new show it's is It's also really, smart. Yeah. Oh, my gosh. Just sardonic. Um, he, so there's this show that I was telling you about. They stand up on the spot, right? Which is... Um, they do this show. Yes, where Jeremiah Watson's show. Jer right? yeah, yeah, Jeremiah Watson's show. Yeah. And um, so they had it at the catacombs. Like the, I saw it, and uh, he comes up, and I was like, "Oh my gosh, I've always, I'm such a comedy fan, right? I'm like, I've always wanted, and I love Tony Hinchcliffe. I think he's have so you listened funny. to his podcast? Yeah, it's great. Yeah, the kill Tony fans. stuff. Yeah, yeah. He, um, and so I was like, I, it was such a cool thing because I'm like, 
I'm a massive comedy fan, and I can finally, like, ask him, call, like, it's open season for heckling, but not really, you know? And, uh, and so I was like, I want to know what he has to say about, uh, like, tall women, right? I was like, I really want to know what Tony Hinchcliffe has to say about that. And so I yelled out, uh, uh, Tinder dates that are taller than you. And he goes, what? <laughs> and those, like, beady blue eyes, like, fixed on me. He's like, what did you say? And I was like, Tinder dates that are taller than you. And he goes... <laughs> Oh, honey, I don't have to go on Tinder. I'm one of the most successful young comedians in North America. <laughs> that, that, that deadpan look we just fucking stares at you. He's funny. He's, I don't think he gets... Cause comedians I think he's like fearless, him. man. I've heard him say shit yeah. I cannot believe somebody's saying. And I look at it and I go, how could anybody misinterpret this? How could anybody not see the irony in how he's expressing this? But people do. I think they do it. I think they do it on purpose. I, honestly, I think you're right. I think a lot of people yeah. do. You a know lot what? of people fill their lives with you know that kind of well, the social justice warriors, where they, they they get such tunnel vision, you know, that they forget about what the real world is. You know, you grew up in New York. Yeah. Uh, do you know Brian Scalaro? Brian Scalaro. So no, he's I a don't. comedian. He's I've uh, heard his name, but I don't know him. He's a comic. He's he's, he's done some TV as well. As, he's a good. He was here a, a, uh, two weeks ago mm-hmm. uh, at the Comedy Nest. He was. Um, I think he's back in New York now, and then he lives in LA. But I saw with him w- where people want to be the stars, because he there was a heckler right a couple of minutes into his set. This guy started yelling at him. And uh, I'm, you know, I, he told me this a day later because I was on the day after with him. So we're backstage talking about this. So the guy's yelling at him and he's telling him uh, unoriginal material, unoriginal material. He's like, what are you talking about? This is my material, he goes. He's like, no, 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 I saw this on YouTube. And he looks at him, he's like, yeah, from my Conan set, from me, I'm the one saying it, right? Right, right. So the, the guy's still, you know, talking shit, whatever. So he tells him, you know what? How much you pay to get in here? He's like, 10 bucks. Pulls out $10 from his pocket, throws it at him, tells him, get the fuck out of here, right? So kid gets up, leaves, takes the $10, obviously. But he goes on Twitter and starts ranting, apparently, about uh, Scalaro, but then felt bad because he's like, I'm a huge fan. So the next day he came back, when the, the night that I was there with Brian, he comes back and he's like, uh, I just wanted to apologize. I wasn't trying to heckle you. I'm a big fan. I just, I thought it was easy. I was going to get more original stuff that I haven't seen before. He's like, yeah, well, wait, you, you started yelling at me two minutes into my fucking, uh, my act. Uh, uh, uh. But he's like, you don't understand. I'm a real big fan of yours. But how the fuck are you a fan when you're yelling while I'm talking <laughs> no. and you're telling people that the way you made it sound was like I stole these fucking jokes, you know, that are my fucking jokes. People are weird, man. I don't and know if he, you noticed. And he felt bad. <laughs> he's like, let's smoke a joint together. He's like, get the fuck out of here. Sm- I don't want to smoke a joint. No, you, you act you, like an animal. <laughs> but it's just crazy that this guy... Well, that's a, that's a whole other weird thing that's happened Hecklers. in comedy now, which is that, you know, pre-internet, for better or worse, I'm just saying this is the way it was, but pre-internet here in America... You could have a solid hour, and you could work the road, not even on a on a big level, just uh, just a working man, you know, working comedian level of, of of going from road gig to road gig to road gig. You know, you could do that with the same hour for a couple of years, yeah. for a few years. You know, expose a little bit of it on TV here, a little bit there, but for the most part, a new set. Or and and over that time, the core of the show remains the same, and stuff comes in and out, and it, you know it's like this flow of material. So if you go to see somebody a year later, you might see half the same show and half new stuff, you know. Uh, but now, it's almost like every time you get up in front of an audience, you have to have new material because they've seen it all on on online somewhere, and that's a crazy pressure that I think pushes pushes people artistically for sure. 
but I think it makes it really, really difficult for a lot of people to develop stuff, you know? So it's just different. Like I said, I'm not saying one is better or worse because there's when I first started working over in the UK, now the UK has been like that for a long time. The UK, if you were really, you know, a comedian of, of any note in the UK, you would do shows at Edinburgh and you would have to have a brand new hour every year. And the UK is small enough so that if you went around the country, you know, to all the major cities, once a year, you were tapped. You had to have new material to go back the next time because it's too small a country. Here, we could, you know, we could. Yeah. It's a big country. We can go around the circle several Penn times. Tellus, thank you so much for having me on. This is like a master class, really. Like, um, so where's the line between people weighing in on a subject and stealing? <laughs> That's a, uh, where, where, Was where that like we... three tangents in one? Yeah. <laughs> I got a little confused there. How did we jo- like? Did you hear something differently? We didn't talk about joke thievery, but uh, that <laughs> I thought pre-internet. You know what I mean? Oh, like yeah, pre-internet. Okay. Oh, pre-internet. The idea yeah. of you, I, a set, you oh. know, evolving well, or you like know, you know, because uh, there, I I do think that there's a very pre-internet. Line. It was actually face to face. Like there was a time. All right, I'm going to sound like the hundred year old guy here, but you know, I started as a as a young teenager. I was 16 when I started. Uh, like when I was a, uh, a regular at the Improv in New York. And uh, this is late 70s. And uh, there was actually a time where every comedian knew every other comedian, had crossed paths with every other comedian, not 100%, but I mean, overall, generally speaking, you know, or, or at some point would cross paths with another comedian because there weren't that many clubs around. And if you were in New York, you know, pretty much any comedian that was working was going to come through one of the New York clubs. They were going to come through one of the L.A. clubs, you know, and you would end up seeing all these people face to face. I remember having a conversation with David Brenner going, that's a bit that I've been doing. It's like, this was very shortly after I started, maybe three, four years after I started. And David Brenner comes in to work out, the New York Improv comes in to work out a Tonight Show set, and he does a bit. And I was like, oh my God, that's like my signature piece. That's like the strongest piece I have. I've only been doing it for a few years. I go, it's the same bit. What do I do? And I went up to him and I said, I'm not saying that you stole this or anything, but it's it's a bit I do. I go and and you know I did it on this local show or whatever. I, I don't know if it matters, but this is really awkward for me because I'm a, a huge fan of yours, and you know I, I, I this is really uncomfortable for me. And he put his hand on my shoulder and he said, "Don't worry about it. Don't worry about it. It's gone. It's gone." And he stopped doing the bit. Get the fuck out. Yeah, of and I watched him on the Tonight Show, and he didn't do the bit, and he never did the bit again, as far as I know. He just stopped doing the bit. It was that kind of world where people were like. You could actually sit with the person doing your material and you could either have a fight or you could go, okay, well, here's why I think mine is different, whatever. And we actually had these, like, if two people were on the same bill and somebody had uh, material that you thought might step on it, you'd go like, uh, okay, you're up first. So, you know, sometimes I remember in a couple of places going, you know what, do your bit first. I'm going to see if I can follow it with my bit. And that'll tell us if if they really are stepping on each other or not. And uh, uh, and so it was it was kind of manageable because you pretty much were in contact with other people. It, it was the comedies exploded to where I don't know how many millions of comedians there are now. Oh, there are a lot, you know. But it, there it was a very definable group of people. I mean, yeah. it wasn't it wasn't nothing, and you know it wasn't like you met every comedian in the world. But there's a good chance you know that you would run into or have some interaction with just about anybody. But now everybody calls himself a comedian too. That's the other issue. 
I've met that's people. That's the other thing. Like, oh, you're a comedian. I'm a comedian too. I'm like, oh, nice. You know, you're performing anyways. Like, oh, I haven't done an open mic in three years, but you know, I've done comedy a couple of times. Like, well, you're, <laughs> I remember get, like, you really, get in a cab. You get in a cab from the airport and goes going to this hotel. Oh, what it brings you to town? Whatever. I'm doing a comedy show at uh, you know the Chuckle Hut. Whatever. And they go, oh, really? You're a comedian? Wow, that must be something really fascinating. And then at some point, it started to happen where you'd get in the cab and go, oh, yeah, I'm a comedian, whatever. They go, really? I'm a comedian, yeah. too. I opened at that same club three weeks ago. I opened for a so-and-so, whatever. Is it? Something changed. Something changed. Something changed <laughs> along the way. It, it's absurd now. But the, the thievery, some people, I've seen parallel thought where there, there's a topic, right? And you're going to step on mean, it. If it's, right? it's, it's politics, Trump. There's going to be people that have Trump jokes, right? Mm-hmm. I stopped doing Trump jokes because everybody's doing them, right? Yeah. But you're going to find that. But there are people who purposely, though, steal Joe. They like it a lot. Yeah, you know yeah. What? I'm and I, f- think, I think you can tell when that's You can happened. tell because they don't you have – you don't have the same passion for a joke you stole yeah. as a joke that's yours. That's the one thing I said. If people steal my stuff, I talk about my life a lot. Yeah. I'll know. I'll, I'll know. Yeah. Like, really, that has happened to ever, you, too? Has it ever ha- – you know, you don't have to name names, but has, y- the, it, ha- it, like, has it happened? And then how did um, you navigate it? It yeah. happened in Montreal here. Uh, Andy Tenderloin's a comedian, my friend. He's the one who caught the guy. There was a guy, he was doing one of my jokes at an open mic here. And it was a joke about the movie Air Bud. Yeah. I, I did years ago. I don't even do it anymore. And he called me because he had heard about it. And yeah. he called me. He's like, dude, I'm watching him right now. Verbatim, he took your fucking joke. What do you want me to do to him? <laughs> and I told him, just tell the kid I don't do the joke anymore to get his own jokes. But if he wants, I don't give a shit. I don't use the joke anymore. Yeah. But just tell him to get his own jokes because he can't keep doing this. You know? Yeah. And he, I don't know what he did. He approached the kid. He told him, we know you fucking stole the joke or whatever. That kid, I think, stopped doing comedy. He was an open micer. But, and I think just the pressure of having another comedian go up to him and be like, I know you stole that joke. It's my friend's joke, this and that. Yeah. I think kind of stopped him. It wasn't a joke I was doing. And he got it from YouTube. It was from that one night. It was from that whole uh, half hour that I had done with Andy Tenderloin. That's where he stole the joke from. It was already on the internet. Yeah. Right? There was no... There was no debate about it. Yeah, well, but you know, it was, he had it was the like balls. Though. We had each other's backs, you know, he had largely. The balls. I mean, I'm a, again, I'm speaking in general. No, come on, it could. In my no, experience, what, I'm going to tell you. I'm going to tell you a few stories. You've had to have one time where I, it wasn't all like. You know, oh, ab- absolutely! I'll tell you exactly what the story was. Oh, he was good. a brilliant comedian named Richie Morris. Uh, very odd. It's, it, it's ahead of his time in many ways. Like if he showed up now, people would go like he's like the alterna, the alterna comedy genius. You know, or like a emo. No, just just odd, a very unique approach to things. Uh, a little bit surreal, a little bit off base. Very funny guy, whatever. And um, he once accused me of stealing a bit of his, and um, uh, I even did to him at one point, uh, where he went up and he did the bit, and then I happened to go up later in the show, and I did my version of the bit. And it worked, and it was clearly not the same, you know. Although it had some similar uh, premise, uh, similar premise, whatever. But he would not let it go. He would not let it go. He would not let it go about how I stole this bit from him. I stole this bit from him. So I said, you know what, Richie? And I took my wallet out, and I have a a blank check, and I wrote a hundred dollars, Richie Mars, and I gave it to him, and I said, not an expression of guilt, not an admission of guilt. But just if this makes you happy, to stop with this no. already. Yeah. And that's how I settled that thing, right? George Wallace had the greatest thing. He said, somebody steals one bit of mine, I steal five bits of theirs. <laughs> and we'll just keep doing it. We'll just keep doing it until, until, until somebody falls. But now... And that this- was his way of handling with it. But it was all personal. You could have the conversation. Yeah. You could have, you know, there was no like public exposure. And really, back then, nobody gave a shit. Nobody gave a shit if a comic stole somebody else's material. It didn't have the same kind of meaning that it does now because comedy is in this place 
it, comedy, I feel, is in this place now that music was in the 60s, where it's almost the voice of of a generation that feels like they they don't really have a voice or or the ideas that are are affecting them aren't really out there in any other place and That's and true. so i i feel like people's relationships to comedy are really what they used to be to music like 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 yeah. Doug Stanhope fans are like rabid religious rabid, yeah. like they're, they're, they're like replacements fans mm-hmm. you know <laughs> they just like they, 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 they crash on each other's couches when they're coming to each other's town yep. when Stanhope's working in each other's town they're like a community around Doug Stanhope that never existed before that's unbelievable and it's fantastic so I think a lot of people are having a different Comedians relationship are... with comedy than they were back in the late 70s and, and in, through the comedy boom of the 80s it was just entertainment and I don't think it, it had the same emotional resonance for people that it seems to be happening more and more now that I think is beautiful. But so it was a different time and it was a different passion about all of that sort of stuff. Mostly it was just comics really going like, you know, hey, you stole my bit, you know. And nine times out of ten you'd have a conversation with somebody. I remember having a conversation with one comedian where we acknowledged that we both had almost the exact same bit. But we also acknowledged that both of us came up with it independently. And we both agreed... You do it when you're on the road. I'll do it when I'm on the road. If we're on a show together anywhere, neither one of us does it. Yeah. It was like, perfect, man. See you later. Yeah, that's... And over time, and over time, you know, the bit became dated for both of us, and it just went away. Yeah, you, that's what's always going to happen yeah. with bits, right? Unless you have something killer that will just keep destroying. But normally, you even get tired of it. I don't know if yeah, stuff. right, right, I used right. To love... So eventually, it became a non-issue. Mm-hmm. But, but it was that kind of a civil discourse. Like, you know what? You do it, you know, you do the bit your way when you're working. I'll do it my way. And we'll just we'll make sure that it's not a problem for anybody. But that was before anybody could, you know, hold up a cell phone and capture a bit. And then all of a sudden, it's an issue because it's public. It wasn't just in front of 100 people at a club that night. Now, okay, <laughs> what about when you're kicking around ideas, with other premises comics? for a bit, that have not been claimed yet, you know, and they're not yeah, all fleshed yeah. out, it's just like, you know, that, that wonderful, like, organic discourse that you, that you just, uh, like, elo- um, yeah, that, that you were talking about. Right. Um, in other words, basically work out a bit amongst friends, not in a, pub, not in a, in a, a professional setting. Yeah. And it's actually real conversation. So, like, who owns it? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> you know <laughs> what I mean? The, you know, the biggest phrase, when I was coming up, the biggest phrase that every comedian said more than anything else was, hey, can I use that? Yeah. <laughs> We'd just be sitting around riffing yeah. ideas. I used to do this a lot with Rick Overton. Rick Overton. The, the New York improv in the late 70s was a very special place. And there was a little... The place was decorated with like um, a thrift store shit, and there was an old preacher's pulpit that that ended up being like the wall around one table in the bar, and that's the table where like five or six comics would all gather around, and, and because of that pulpit, kind of came over the side and the top, and that dark, rich wood, and it felt like we were in a little cocoon, and we would just throw ideas back and forth and zing and zing and zing. And, you know, somebody would come up with a premise and then everybody would add some shit to it and we'd just be like, oh, great, yeah, that's that's your premise. You, you do the thing. I mean, that was like the way things went. And I think a lot of us grew from that. A lot of us, it was, it was we were all really sort of helping each other. Um, I don't know that things are quite the same now. It seems like a little bit less... Um, communal a vibe I, I, I feel like yeah people aren't necessarily like like every night that we were hanging out at the improv trying to get a spot 
was also a night where, oh, oh, who's here? Oh, so-and-so's here, so-and-so's here. Sue Kalinske's here. Let's sit down. Listen, I had this bit. I saw you said the, the other night. I thought of a tag you might want. Yeah. Right? And then it would take off, and then it would take that off. That for sure still I, I, exists. That's still exists. That's, that's great. That's, that's great you know what to I hear. Mean? That's like that idea and that feeling of like, you know... That's one thing that's great about the festival is is when one other time are all of your friends going to be in a foreign yeah. city together, right? And it is that's an, a very enticing thing about comedy is is your tribe, you know? Like yeah, I always yeah. say comedy bar in Toronto on Sunday nights is my cheers. Yes, remember what I was telling you, know? you that I felt that at that that venue. Exactly, I felt that that venue had that kind of vibe. And you yeah. don't know exactly what cast of characters in which order, yeah, but someone's going to be there. The laughing skull in Atlanta is another one like that. The and laughing skull in Atlanta is another one like that. Where it you good, just, yeah. just it's just dripping off the walls. You go, oh, this is a real comedy vibe. This is really like everybody's in this for the right reasons, and they're all trying to just get better and help each other and yeah. just be there for each other and, and form a community. It's yeah. The tags are flowing and there yeah. is there is that organic conversation. When you come up with something that is better, you know, that it, the vernacular fits your friend better. That people offer it up, you know? Yeah. Like um but I'm interested always of like when who I guess it's the person who lays claim to it and gets on stage with it first when you're kicking around ideas like well, that. Well, it also depends. Well, no, usually it's, it's a given. Yeah. Like I said, it's like I'd be sitting with Rick and, uh, you know, and we'd come up with some tags and he'd go off on a thing and I'd go like, are you going to use that or can I throw that in my bed? And he's like, yeah, you, yeah, throw it in your bed or whatever. I'll say, you know what, that's, that's more your voice than my voice. Yeah. You that- should pick up on that. You know, it wasn't, it wasn't, it wasn't like a greedy, ooh, I want this material. No. It was yeah. just kind of like, here it all is, whatever. And it seemed like it would never end. It seemed like it didn't have to be greedy because it just, just always came. And there's nothing better than when that, that moment when a good tag lands on you. Oh, yeah. And when, somebody, and when you have a bit it's that's like, killing and somebody gives you an adjustment to it that brings it up another notch, you're just like, oh, my God, yeah. what a great thing you gave. What a great gift that was. The oh, uh, the comedian you guys just met right now outside. Remember when Rodney. we were coming? Rodney. Okay. What's when his last name? Rodney, Rodney Ramsey. Uh-huh. When me and Rodney first met I, a couple of years ago, I was on a show at the Comedy Works. I think he was he was hosting that night. And uh, he was doing a bit, and I was loving the bit. In the back of my mind, I was like, oh, I think this is a good way for him to go a good direction. And he didn't go that way, right? And it was a great bit. I didn't know him well enough, so I I went in the back. Hey, listen, man, I don't know you well enough, but I thought of this, this, and this for this bit. And he's looking at me. He's like, man, don't you want that? And I was like, no, because then I would have to have your joke for it to make sense. I would have to get your joke. But we can't let this die. This is a good fucking tag. So he's like, yeah, man, thanks. And then after, uh, a couple of months later, when we met again, I asked him, hey, is that working for you? He's like, yo, watch this. And he went up, and he fucking did so much better with it than I could have ever done because it was in his voice. It was su- it was perfect. Yeah, but he's yeah. one of those guys, a real comedian. He understands it. You know, you'll flow with him. You'll talk back and forth. But others don't get that. Others are very enclosed. And another comedian gave me a great tag two weeks ago, Mike Carota locally, nice. on a joke of mine about an airplane. And he was laughing. He's like, how the fuck did you not think of saying this and this? And I was like, holy shit, it's two fucking lines. You know, it, this is a funny story. Uh, um, and now I use it, and it's great. It's a perfect this tag. Involves, yeah. this I didn't think about it. Uh, this involves Jerry Seinfeld way back in the day before he was, you know, really famous. Uh, but Jerry used to do this bit, and I always thought it was absolutely brilliant. And uh, I asked him a couple of times, I was like, you know, you're still doing that bit? That bit is so great. And he'd go, yeah, yeah, I stopped doing it. Maybe I'll bring it back. Uh, I don't know. I was like, Jerry, that bit is so great. I go, it's it's one of those, why didn't I think of that bit? I go, it's just so great. I love that bit. 
And then he tried it again a few times. And one night, I, I, I was with and Jerry and I aren't aren't close. You know, I mean, we we saw each other every night for I don't know how many a decade at the, um, the improv at the improv at the comic strip, Catch a Rising Star, whatever. Uh, and then in L.A., you know, I mean, like we were on the same bills all the time. And and uh, but we were never really close. I wasn't, you know. Um, but I loved this bit, and I kept saying, Jerry, that bit is so great. And then he stopped doing it, and I was like, that bit is so great, I can't believe you, you're not doing it anymore. And he goes, oh, I'm going to try it again. So he tried it again, and then he came up to me a couple of nights later, and he said, and I said, did you try that bit again? He goes, yeah. You know what? He goes, you like it so much? He goes, it's yours. He goes, <laughs> he goes it's just not me. It's just not me. He goes, I don't, I don't feel good about it. And he goes, but if, if you want to do something with it, do something with it. And I put it on my first Showtime special. And I gave Jerry a special thanks at the end because he had given me that bit. And um, I turned it into, you you turn know, into really your, my yeah. voice, but the premise was pure Jerry Seinfeld. And uh, I don't know if he remembers this. I don't know if he ever saw it and remembered that he even gave it to me or thought that I stole it or what. I have no clue. We never had a conversation about it again. As I say, we're not that close. Uh, um, but he just gave me the bit because it wasn't working for him. And it, I was able to make it my voice really easily, which is why I responded to it. Like, I heard the premise, and I was like, oh, my God, I love that bit, you know, because it responded to my voice, not his. And, um, and he just gave it to me. You know, so that used to happen all the time. And uh, he never did it on television or anything like that. Yes, yeah, so it wasn't it's weird because he had another bit. The bit was about dying in a, dying, drowning in a swimming pool on a cruise ship in the middle of the ocean. And I just, I, I just love that. And I turned that into like a whole like three or four or five minute piece about, you know, about mortality and that if you, we're all going to die anyway, so try and make it as funny as possible. You know, I turned it into a little bit of a darker piece than he generally liked to go. But then I saw him do a piece that he had to stop doing after the space shuttle Challenger explosion. He had to stop doing this piece because he was doing a thing about how all these, you know, NASA would be sending people into space on the shuttle and everything. And it's like, it's like no big deal. Like, you know, it's like no big deal. It happens all the time now. And he's like, I think they should take people against their will. And he did this whole thing about dragging some guy onto, into getting a capsule, getting a capsule, you know. <laughs> and Jerry, I didn't want to go. And just me on the window, banging on the window, let me out, you know. Uh, and he goes, that, that would make us, that would make us a, a little bit more, that would make the space travel a little more exciting <laughs> again, you know. And then the space Shuttle Challenger <laughs> happened, and he was like, "That's it for Ooh. that bit." But I had seen him do that bit, and I thought that's a darker bit than the cruise ship bit. But for some reason, he... the voice—if it's not yeah, yeah, in yeah, you, yeah—that's why I'm saying yeah. stolen material. But people don't remember. I remember Jerry Seinfeld when Jerry Seinfeld said "fuck" in every other sentence. He's known as this squeaky clean yeah. guy, and he is. But it was—it was a conscious decision to do that. But he used to say he used to use "fuck" as a, as a rhythm stop all the time. What the fuck is it with these people? What the fuck is that? You know, and he used to do a bit. This is, people don't believe this was a Jerry Seinfeld bit, but there used to be a commercial on television for like Formula 409 spray cleaner or whatever, where they'd, it'd be this stove and the word grease would be written out in grease on the stove and there's the wipe with this cleaner on it would come, you know, wipes away grease, wipes away grime, and it would say grime on the floor and it was wiping away and all these different things. And he'd go, and he was doing this thing about laundry detergents or something, and he was like, you know, uh, grease, uh, grease is a very helpful, uh, helpful stain because it spells itself out right there. So you know exactly what you're dealing with grease. It spells <laughs> itself right there. He goes, grime. I don't even know what grime is, but it'll spell itself right out for you right there on the floor and everything. He goes, I'm so glad that not all stains are like that. It really, be, it would really be awful to go to the laundromat and unfold your sheets and it says, come. <laughs> <laughs> 
That's a Seinfeld bit. Get that was a Seinfeld bit, yeah. Wow. Get the fuck out. <laughs> yeah, that wouldn't be Seinfeld now. Isn't that funny? That's it wouldn't be him now. It's amazing, though, the evolution of a voice, right? When you start finding your rhythm and you're really expressing yourself and how you grow. And, and if you look at... That's what I like about watching comedians that have their stuff out there for a long time, years. You see the... It's like a band. You see the first album, yeah, the second album, yeah, yeah. just the changing. And certain people can't even last that long, right? They have that... The first album is amazing because it was stuff, jokes that they were writing and they were preparing for years. Right. And then they got to rush the other stuff because right. everybody's putting pressure on them. Right. And that's what's happened. That's what I'm saying now is that, you know, you do a set or you do a special somewhere... And, you know, it's, it's available for forever. It's not like, it's oh, I didn't get to stuff. see it when it ran the first time, you know. And it runs and runs and runs and runs. And you just better be cranking out more material. You just better be cranking out more material because once you get the fans, like you, like you saw with that guy, you know, uh, we want to see some new shit. Yeah. Uh, you know, a few people have gone to the UK and had problems with that, like some, some, some big names. Sarah Silverman had a problem with that. She went and did a, uh, some concerts in the UK. And they were pretty pricey. She was in big, fancy halls, you know. And um, and the audience was irate because uh, she didn't do a whole new show, and they were really angry at her. <laughs> Holy shit! Yeah, because they they have like like you said they they're expressing and they're experiencing something different there. Where if you're gonna come see us, you're gonna give us something new, not the stuff that we've seen on TV. Right. So for them or it, online, yeah, it was. And not who knows normal. what the hell goes online? But that's the other thing. People with their cell phones. Another thing that I don't like is sometimes I'll see somebody pull out their cell phone, and I'm like, "Are they taking a picture right now?" And you know, you're thinking about it. You're talking. You're telling jokes. Yeah, yeah. I'm like, "Are they taking a picture of their videos?" Yeah. And sometimes after the show, some people are like, "Oh, I, this bit was so funny. I sent it to my to my girlfriend on Snapchat." And I'm thinking, like, "Holy fuck!" Like th- just as easily as they sent it on Snapchat, yeah. they could have sent my punchline on YouTube or on Facebook. Yeah. And then another fifty people, another ten people would have seen it if they'd come back to see another show. They're gonna know the punchline because somebody sent them to me a video. I didn't. And it's not ready yet for it to be online. Yeah. You're still working yeah. stuff, out. and it's just so absurd. And you can't do anything once it's being. What am I gonna do? I'm gonna stop the show and be like, "Give me your phone." Yeah. Stanhope. Uh, Stanhope. Before There's before most shows will actually say. Listen, don't please don't put anything up online. Because like you know, it's, I'm working stuff out. You know, I'm always working out stuff on everything. It's, it's it's about the live experience. Don't put it up online. What you know? Please, I'm begging you. I'm asking you not to fuck this up. You know, and and his fans would re- react accordingly. They yeah, were totally like respected. And yeah, he has amazing fans. Yeah. <laughs> amazing. The, the problem with going to see Doug Stanhope is they're going to see Doug Stanhope. They know who they're getting and they're excited for him. When you go to a club and you don't know, you're not a comedy fan, you're like, oh, there's a comedy club in town. They're going to have international comedians. Yeah. You just go in. You right. don't know who it's going to be. Right. That's one of the reasons why I'm doing very little stand-up these days is because at some point you get, you know, it's like George Carlin used to say that in comedy, context is everything. But context also includes what the audience knows about you when they bought that ticket. So if you get to a point, you know, in in your development as an artist, as a comedian, when you're, it's people who are coming who don't know you still. Like that's what happened to me is I never had enough of a name where I could sell out a 400 seat theater with all people that knew me and wanted to come and see me. You know, almost every gig was well, at least 50%, if not more, of people that didn't know who the hell I was. They were just going out to see comedy that night, you know. Uh, and, uh, and that's like a blind date every goddamn night. Yeah. You got to reintroduce and, yourself. Yeah, and it's exhausting, and it's and it and it keeps you from really soaring, and it keeps you from pushing your own edges because you got to do the, the meet and greet, 
Hi, I'm Paul. This is what I do. This is who I am. I, you know, I'm not going to hurt you. I'm not this, I'm that. You know, get on board my train. This is the way I see the world, whatever. And it's just like, it just keeps you back from like all that stuff. You know, when you're in a relationship with somebody that knows you, knows what you're all about, you can pick it up in a different place and go way further, way faster. Yeah. And it just gets really tedious, you know. Um, uh, whereas, you know, Stanhope's fans... They know exactly what he's all about. Which is exactly amazing because when you about. see him, he's in his comfort zone. It's as if he's talking to his family in a living room. It's just him shooting the shit, not thinking about their sensibilities. You're yeah. like, this is me. You came here for me. You're going to watch this. Right. But for a lot of, like, I'm not, I'm, I'm not Doug Stanhope, right? And most of us aren't. So most of us <laughs> most are in the of clubs. Us are not Doug Stanhope. <laughs> We're in the clubs. And it, there's a lot of that. There's a lot of times where I'm looking at half the audience. I'm like, okay, I don't know them, but they're on board. Yeah. And there's another half. They're looking at me like, do I take this as a joke? Is he is he serious? Is he hateful? Is he this? And there's all these things that are going on in their head. And you need to cram, what, 10 minutes, 7 minutes, 15 minutes, depending on where you're at yeah. and how much time they're giving you. You need to get them on board to understand who you are and then tell your jokes. And it's uh, it's work. It's work. And a lot of people just come in after a long week of work and like, oh, I'm just going to see somebody funny. And you might be attacking their sensibilities. It could be complete different humor. Yeah. And it, it could literally be you rolling your sleeves up for 20 minutes of trying to get them on board. And that's where, when you said about the the comic lifestyle, you know what I mean? That even people who aren't comics, like I remember one time uh, I was shopping in a juice aisle with my friend and we were just, it was turning into a Seinfeld episode trying to pick this juice, right? And he says to me, he's like, you're not a comic, but you have that comedic temperament. And I'm like, that's that's very, very true. Um, what is something when you're speaking about the evolution of a voice, you two personally as comics, do you have a clear marker of a time, like something that's pushed that evolution forward, right? Because when you first got on stage, you wouldn't be like thinking about all of that, the way that you just described reading a room. So is there a clear marker or is it kind of a more reflective uh, thing? Both with with as many years as as I've been doing it, there are some turning points for me, but each of those turning points was preceded by the sort of vague, abstract something's happening, and and time and experience kind of makes it all. You know, you start to realize, you know, that's the thing uh, about you know how how uh, th there's the adage that it takes ten years to become a comedian, yeah. that really before that you're just developing, yeah. and there's no way that you can actually really call yourself a real comedian yep. until you've had like 10 years doing it and that's sh sheer numbers because when you get up in front of enough audiences to have experienced enough different people enough different audiences enough different circumstances enough different environments enough different whatever you start to get an intuition you start to get an instinct for stuff but that only happens over thousands of experiences, otherwise they were all individual. You know, it's not not until you have enough stage time where you've really basically like nothing's going to surprise you. You know, like you, there's nothing so out of left field that you've not experienced some version of it at some point, and that just takes sheer numbers. Just how many sets do you have? You know, it's the ten thousand hour rule. Yeah, you know? uh, any practice. It takes ten thousand hours yeah. of practice to be an expert in anything. Yeah. Um, uh, uh, and most comics aren't doing. An hour at a time, so you're talking what? You're talking forty thousand, fifteen minute sets. Especially if you're in <laughs> LA, they do those fucking three minute sets that we don't have here. We don't. Have, they do three minute sets at certain places. Some of the showcases, yeah. How the fuck yeah. do you get three? Especially for me, I tell stories, right? Yeah. Three minute set. I did one when I was in LA to fuck around, and uh, I said one joke. 
That was it. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I was like, yeah. thank God I got the punchline out. So a lot of it, I think, it, you know, is just is just you know living it for a long time, and it's and and that process is an ongoing, constant process of oh, you know, there will come times where you go, oh, I've actually really learned that now. I know yeah. now that that's something that I've learned, you know? Um, but it creeps up on you. <laughs> but I, I have had moments where things shift and change radically. Um, uh, I'm in one of them now, actually. I've, I would say probably uh, over the course of all the years I've been doing it, uh, there are probably about four times where I feel like, oh, I'm a totally different guy or totally different comedian than I was then. And if you had to name those eras, if you will, or like what, if you were naming them like chapters, what would they be? <sighs> That's a really tough one because that implies that in order for me to do that, I would have to judge them in some way. Mm. And, and I don't want to do that. It's not real. Like, what did you learn? What did they come out of? Um, Intangible stuff. It's a, it's intangibles, a yeah. It's a yeah. feeling, yeah. Yeah, and, and, you know, as we go through life, we change, yeah. you know, and we grow, and we outgrow our clothes, we outgrow our ideas, we outgrow the people in our lives, we outgrow a lot of things, so it, it's really just a function of that. But most comedians who are, you know, there, there's, I guess it's, it's kind of important to, to remind ourselves that comedy and music are similar in this way as well as so many other ways in that you know there are musicians who are fine excellent musicians uh and they're in cover bands yeah because that's what they want to do they want to have whatever occupation they have and then on weekends they want to make a few you know want to make some beer money and jam with their friends and they're in cover bands and that's what they're happy doing and, you know, there are a lot of comedians who are just happy going out and having an audience laugh at the stuff that they've perfected. And, 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 and they want an audience to have a nice time and they, and they get a decent paycheck from it. And that's all they want. And I'm not judging them. I'm not being critical of them at all. But they are different from your Louis C.K.'s or your Bill Burr's or, you know, so many other comedians who have some other different reason for doing what they're yeah. doing. Uh, um, uh, so it's important to note that, you know, none of these are universals, and I'm speaking in a lot of kind of generalities and shit, but, but there are people who don't concern themselves with this, and it's just they're happy going from gig to gig and making their paycheck, doing what they, what they do best, what they know how to do, and enjoying the fact that an audience loves, the, you know, just had a great time with them for 20 minutes on a cruise ship or at a corporate gig or whatever, you know. Um, um, well so not everybody has to go through sort of merging what you're doing as a comedian with the personal experiences you're having as a human being. Yeah. You know, like when you get to a point where there's, if you care about those kinds of things, you know, I got to several points where I would look at my material where I was, I was making some sort of social comment of some kind or whatever, as pretentious as that might be. But I just go, well, I'm not sure I really believe that anymore. Yeah. yeah. You know, and then you got to go, okay, well, so then I got to get rid of the bit, but then like, well, what if I go after my own misconceptions that led me to that bit in the first place? Is that an interesting place to go? And, and eventually it just becomes like, your act becomes like, wow, man, this shirt doesn't fit anymore. The yep. buttons wow. are pulling weird, you know, a lot of that happens and it happens almost after the fact. Like you've grown as a human being and then you realize, holy shit, you know, this, this suit doesn't fit anymore. Wow. Well said. Um, well for said. some people, you know, again, everybody's different and everybody has a different path. And I think also, 
you know, it's very interesting to see, because I, I, I spend a lot of time with young comedians, comedians in their 20s and 30s, uh, you know, with, with uh, set list and the green room. I've gone around the world and, and, and interacted with and stayed fresh with a lot of young talent and a lot of people that aren't of my generation. But a lot of other comedians of my generation haven't had that experience. And, and it's really easy to feel like, you know, you're sort of, you're now outsider from the world because you're not one of the new kids on the block or whatever. But I've had the, the good fortune to really span all kinds of generations and all kinds of levels of experience. And I know that the impulse is the same. The externals have changed. Like I, I, being a, starting out as a comedian now is uh, uh, it, it well, so uh, vastly different from huh. when I started out. And, and, and it's really interesting to see like there are some comedians who I met in their you know mid to late twenties who are now uh, names of note and accomplishment, who are going through a lot of shifts and changes, and to watch it happen, being outside because my only experience of that was myself and my friends of my own generation. But now I'm seeing it as a little bit of an outsider. I had a similar experience my own way, but I've never seen anybody else do it. Yeah. You know? To that, to that degree, and it's really fascinating to watch. Of these new, like, you are in a very interesting position, the fact that you know, like, new comedians as well as, you know, like, a great... Um, uh, who are some of my favorites? Yeah, yeah. Uh, I think Guy Branham may be an all-time original. Guy Branham is unbelievable. Branham. I don't even know what the fuck he <clears throat> does. It's brilliant. Uh, T.J. Miller, and yeah. I've been friends yeah. and, and a fan of T.J.'s for long before anybody knew who T.J. Miller was. And uh, I actually got to know him from seeing a couple of clips, and I think I saw him do a spot somewhere. I didn't really know him, but he had reached out to me because he heard about Setlist, and he's like, "That I would love to do that." And I was like, "Wait, is this the T.J. Miller?" Uh, um, and um, uh, I just think his his yeah. talents are. Which you've just scratched the surface of his talents, oh, yeah. you know, and, and Kamel as well. Kamel, I think, is growing by leaps and bounds. I knew Kamel from back in in Chicago before he even, uh, quite a while before he moved to L.A., shortly after the the material that became uh, his movie. Uh, uh, yeah, he has um, that movie now, yeah. Yeah. Um, uh, I worked with him on turning, uh, I worked with him on a, a one a solo show, which um, was really unbelievable, and he ultimately had to stop doing it because his family in Pakistan was getting death threats. So yeah, so he had to stop doing this wow. this show. See, that's the kind of um, shit we don't have to deal with. Yeah, uh, and and Kamel uh, is another one whose his talents are revealing themselves little by little. You know, more and more layers. He's brilliant. Um, gee, God, this, I think Moshe Kasher is unbelievable. Yeah. But I don't know—is he even considered a young comedian anymore? Is he even considered like a like a? I mean, yeah, because yeah, he's. he's He's, he's to me, he's a regular name, right? Like yeah, he's, I mean, uh, like he's already a he's name, established, right? Yeah, he's certainly a, among comedy fans. Yeah, he certainly is. I, mean, I don't, I don't consider him new. States now on yeah. Comedy yeah. Central. So, um, oh, him uh, and Brent Weinbach doing the, the gangster prank call is one of my favorite. I met Bo Burnham. Clips. I met Bo Burnham uh, over the phone when he was, I think, sixteen or something like no that, way. and I had to convince him I'm not a pedophile. <laughs> um, uh, um, but so I'd been aware of him for a long time, and to see what's happened. To him, how he's grown artistically as well as just as a human being is it's mind blowing. But he's he's a he's a bad example because he's not the norm because he's un, he's a real prodigy. He's yeah, he's absolutely brilliant. He's on another fucking. But level. he never bought into show business. No, he doesn't give a shit. He cares about doing his own thing, and he does his own thing in his own way. And, and it and it's it's 
it's stand up and it's more than stand up and it's different from stand up and it's precisely stand up. It's he's so interesting, but he's got a manifesto and a theme in his head that I don't even know if he can art- if if he even verbalizes or articulates. But but he definitely has something telling him what he's not about. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. You know, um, uh, and he's just uh, he, he's so he might be one of the smartest comedians I've ever met. Yeah, yeah there, there's something about Bo Burnham. There's definitely he's something. He's very about introspective him. and very thoughtful, and you know he's really a great synthesis yeah. of what's going on culturally. Yeah. That's another thing is when you have your finger right on the pulse. There's certain people that speak to so many because their fingers right. Oh, you just feel it. They're talking. That's I have that experience with very few comedians. One of them is Bill Burr. He starts talking, and I'm like, he is fucking expressing everything I'm thinking. He comes from a place. My he's biggest clarified things oh, I was thinking from. Yeah, it, yeah. he puts things. Yeah. In, he's one of those guys that his fans and I consider myself a huge Bill Burr fan will appreciate, right? And other people think they when you describe like, oh, he's just he's angry, he's talking, he's angry, he's loud. Like, no man, he's got he's he's understood so much and so much more than we do that when he's expressing himself, if you just listen instead of thinking it's a rant, right. you're gonna learn some shit too. Right. I, every time I hear him speak, I learn something. Yeah, I, I'm like, Holy I agree. Fuck. I, I had agree. the same trouble with this, and he pointed out exactly. I don't listen exactly. to his podcast that often because it's too much for me. It's like I, I like I listen to his podcast and be like, I need to di- digest this for a few weeks yeah. before I listen to Bill Burr again. I, I, I think you're right. I think he's the. I actually think he's the closest to George Carlin yes. that's around right now. Yeah, I've said that, and people think I'm crazy because he's very populist. And George Carlin was always populist. There was nothing. George Carlin was really a, a guy from the streets yeah. talking, and I think Bill yeah. Burr hits those same same kinds of beats in the best way possible. Yeah, it? yeah. And it's and it is something you have to get. You have Either to get. You get it or you don't. Because if you that only... there's this kind of send up this of this hyper character that yeah. he's doing that it's not just it's not just him ranting it's there's something a little bit extra to it now i'm not it's I'm, what he's talking about and the way he's expressing it cuz if you look at it just face value and you think oh there's a guy angry or yelling what is he angry about what points is he making most of the points he makes are stuff that we've all thought about but we couldn't articulate properly enough and like you said there's been a lot of cases where he says something like, holy shit, he I finally clarified. That's exactly, that yeah. makes so much sense. And he says some things to me that are like on the, on the, on the face of it, like, oh my God, that's a really offensive idea. But, but then he lays it out and I'm like, oh my God, it's brilliant. Yeah. It's not offensive at all. It's just truthful. And, you know, and again, he also has a lot of, like he'll say, I don't have any answers. You, you know, like he, I think he, there's a catharsis. He comes right out and says, "I might be full of shit, but this is just the way I'm thinking and feeling." You know, I, mean, I think that's. I th- he used to literally say that. He used to literally say, "What do I know? I don't know anything." You know, now I think it's more implicit. But but uh, that's huge. It's huge to be able to change your mind. And the only other person that was able to do that was Patrice O'Neill. I would hear him say stuff where right on face value, I'd be like, I'm, I'm going to be against this for sure. And then Patricia Neal would explain stuff. And I'd, Holy fuck. <laughs> Holy shit, I'm, thinking, yeah. I'm on board this train now. Yeah. He, he got me on board yeah. this fucking train. The power. Yeah. And, and at the end uh, of it, you could even not agree with it, but still go, holy shit, that was brilliant. It's And so few people have that, right? Yeah. That's something that I don't think you could train to get. No. You either have that or you don't. And we do need to be more respectful and appreciate those kind of people. Yeah. Uh, and, and uh, you know, comedy fans will like these comedians and they'll appreciate it and they'll hold them. But the rest of society, if they just see them as entertainment instead of the people who are actually speaking truth and are articulating your 
biggest passions, we're not going to move forward. We're going to get back to this place where, oh, he said something that bothered me. Why did it bother you? Why did it bother you? So why did it hit home? How did a stranger that's never met you before was yeah. able in three minutes to hit yeah. you so hard without even speaking to you directly? Yeah, I think that's, Those are the questions. Yeah, and I think that's, that's, that's also, that's just a function of art. And, and, and I think, you know, comedy for some reason takes the elitism out of art and, and, and that's why it's so confusing for people to separate the art from the artist or the, a joke from the irony behind it and all that sort of stuff. It's, it's an easy arena to get confused in because it is, uh, like George Carlin used to say, it's like, I'm, I'm a vulgar comedian. Vulgar from the, the root word meaning of the people. You know, he wasn't making a value judgment of yeah. it. He's just saying, like, I'm not, I'm not talking, I'm not trying to talk to anybody, you know, you don't need an education to listen to what I'm saying. He goes, I'm talking to the people because I am one of the people and I'm not trying to be somebody else. And, uh, and that, that's what I think comedy is in general. It seems to be a real kind of of the people kind of art form you know and 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 i think that's why it's resonating so much in a in this time where nobody knows nobody trusts media nobody trusts nobody trusts anything anymore and it, it's just finally come to come to bear that everybody is lying to us like yeah. shits in a million different directions and it also there's several generations now that from the day they were born they have been marketed to to within an inch of their lives. They've had shit rammed down their throats, you know. In that way, um, it, it's just accelerated so much, you know. And, and I just think that people are like, without even realizing it, they're like, you know what? There's no bullshit here, this person telling us what he feels. With, with Bill Burr, there's no bullshit. And whether you agree or disagree, you, you have to acknowledge there's no bullshit. There's, that's and a huge that thing. in itself is value. That's huge, but that's cultural huge. value because we're not getting it from our politicians. We're not getting it from the elites. We're not dealing from the controlling majority. We're not getting that. Not getting but from that. these artists, right, from art that are speaking their souls and that evidently are the same thing you're thinking. That's that's the that's the beauty of it. You're finding out that a, it, it breaks so many here's, barriers. Here's the thing. What's a comedian's agenda? That's interesting. Because for me oh, as a comedian, man. I want to kind of bare my soul. I want to talk to you and connect in that level. I want to be able to right. tell you what I find stupid right. and funny but and hope it. that you're you not agree. trying to get a bill passed. No. You're not trying to win an election. I want to make you laugh. Let's you're have a good time. You want to make you laugh. You want to make a little money doing it. Yeah. Right? That's so it. So we're all on board. If I can make you laugh and you're laughing. There's no all... reason for any bullshit. No. But it's hard because when th that, that, that's why I'm struggling to, to answer this because. If my goal, your goal, is to go out there and make people laugh and kind of connect a certain way, right? If you're feeling my shit, if you're feeling what I'm saying, it makes it so much better, right? We're all thinking the same thing. You're having fun with me. But at the same time, uh, in the back of my mind, there's always that thought of nowadays, oh, shit. It, what just came out of my mouth? Those gasps. Is mm -hmm. that going to lead to something else? Is that going to derail? Should my next joke be something else? Because those gasps mean that this section of the audience is pissed off. This set. And you start thinking about what you're going to say, and it changes, I feel, as a comedian, it changes my rhythm. Well, that's kind of the problem with this, the, this culture of, of propriety versus impropriety or what's appropriate piece. I, I, I hesitate to say PC culture because I, I feel like that's kind of a crude shorthand that's yeah. not fair. But, but for lack of a better word, this sort of PC thing, and people go, you know, that's offensive, uh, that kind of thing. Um, the real danger of it is it forces the artists to censor themselves in some way, shape, or form. 
uh, and we've all got to fight that. You know, if we're going to censor, I, I don't think we should censor ourselves. I think I think there is a challenge in okay, how do I make this work? There we go. That can be a creative challenge, but but a lot of people censor themselves because they're just afraid to express certain things. I and, wouldn't be and, happy and going on stage. That's really a I wouldn't really be, an issue. I wouldn't be happy it's going really on stage. Uh, um, um, that's why a lot of people, you know, don't want to do corporates. Or very famously, Jerry Seinfeld, the least offensive famous comedian that we could possibly imagine, colleges feels that colleges are too restrictive. And you know what? He's, <laughs> you know, that's, that's He's right. Oh yeah, it's He's crazy. Right. Yeah, it's I'm, crazy. I'm not Jerry Seinfeld. Yeah. And I, I had came a up in the seventies. I came up in the in the seventies where colleges were where you went to say what you wanted to say. You know that was the that was the hip crowd that you could be iconoclastic with, and they were they they craved it and, and celebrated it. And now it's the antithesis, so it's really weird. You know why it goes back to what you said actually, which is crazy that you brought it up. The whole marketing to that generation, because back in the day, those the college students were the ones that were trying to learn, trying to educate themselves, learn their own truths, right, and become themselves. And now, also, they were politically, uh, you know, it was it was post Vietnam War, post sixties civil rights, post. Feminism, you know, the feminist movement, post gay liberation, you know, the '70s was like all the all the turmoil of the '60s started to be expressed in countercultural comedy in the early '70s, and you know, through most of the '70s. Uh, um, so yeah, it was a slightly different time. Now I, it's very well. Now it's these kids that have been marketed towards a certain way to think for their whole lives, so they're all in that same boat. They all get there together. They all look at each other like, "Are we supposed to laugh? Are we supposed to be mad? Are we?" It happens now in comedy. I, it happens. In I've comedy been studying clubs, yeah. people so much. I'll look at people. There'll be a joke that's said, and they're going to laugh or they're laughing. And then they'll look to the left, look to the right. Are people laughing? Can I laugh at this? Which is crazy because you're eliminating that. That fun kind of um, the freedom, the freedom of the, comedy, the, the light, the permission, the per- which is yeah. one of the most important things that comedy can do for people is to give you permission. That's yes. what Carlin did to, our, to several generations of people that connected with his stuff. They, he gave you permission to not think like everybody else, yeah. for better or worse. You know, and that's that's really valuable, and that's why I think that relationship between audiences and comedians is is the way it is now in this this odd time is because like, Doug yeah. Stanhope gives you permission to not be on board with anything and anybody and you don't have to make a decision about anything if it confuses the fuck out of you. Doug Stanhope gives you so much permission to just call bullshit on anything and everything. I think that's tremendously valuable and it has a rich history in, in all art literature since the beginning of that's recorded a, time. That's a great way to articulate this idea of catharsis that you feel in comedy right like one of my favorite mediums is sketch right that's where what i started watching um uh when i started going to comedy shows uh because i started going to comedy shows because i had this horrible night shift job i worked in uh i worked in a condo and like when people like i had a night shift job it was up till 4 a.m no i started my shift was from 7 a.m at uh, or 11 p.m. at night till 7 a.m. in the morning. That's shitty. And what were we doing? Security? Sto- yeah, security. Really? <laughs> yeah. And, um, did they give you a walkie-talkie, a baton? How did that work? Yeah, yeah. All, um, it was uh, just walking through You were George Zimmerman before George Zimmerman. Yeah. <laughs> oh, don't put that on me. <laughs> put that on me. <laughs> Let me finish my nice story about how I discovered comedy and let's leave horrible Mr. Zimmerman out of this. And how so. there were certain tenants, all of color, that you weren't allowing back in their apartments. I want to hear all about this. 
No Skittles on my watch. <laughs> such a dick in a minute when I when I tell you the, this nice story. <laughs> so um so I was working at this um condo and I started to feel really disoriented like it was really surreal to see the sunrise every morning and be completely sober and my life was uh, really isolated and that's things that people love about night shift but um my friend who is this very uh unsympathetic 20 20 something year old girl who I love dearly but uh, she she keeps it pretty straight, and uh, so I was like, you know what, like I'm a I'm I feel like I don't know what to do with myself, and I'm starting to feel so sad, and I don't see my friends or anything, and we were about to go get some food, and she's like, are you done? And I'm like, no, oh my god, no, this is a big problem for me, and she without barely looking up from her cell phone, she's like, well, if you're sad, why don't you go see a comedy show or something? And the only night I got off was Sunday, and I started to go see Sunday Night Live at Comedy Bar, and it just grew from there. And I remember those early shows when I didn't even know actually how to exist in an audience yet. Uh-huh. You know, I wasn't I wasn't so much of an adult that I was heckling or being too drunk or anything. I knew, you know, I knew th- enough about that. But I remember just this feeling coming forth of like when someone was yelling at their boss on stage. It was great, because I could never yell at my boss, right, but I could right. kind of, you know what I mean? There's things that could be said and done and um, and acted out, and their reality was the same as my reality, right? right? They were like right. 20-something kids, and they wrote about their lives, and I saw it, and it helped me deal in these very finite, you know, very specific vignettes. Yeah. yeah, yeah. And that's how on a tactile level, that was my first feelings around comedy. And it's just, it's a beautiful alchemy that with thoughts, words, and not too much else, you can create, um, like beauty and, and relief. You know, for me, it was the Marx brothers that did something very interesting. Uh, uh, I would see the Marx Brothers and, and also Abbott and Costello. I don't know if you've ever seen the old Abbott and Costello TV show, but what I found fascinating about the Marx Brothers and Abbott and Costello, a few other uh, old-timers like that, was that the Marx Brothers were completely crazy, right? And, they, and, and anarchy was you know, the order of the day with them. But if you take one step back you realize everybody else around them is crazy. Every world that they're a part of is crazy. Same with uh, Abbott and Costello. I used to watch Abbott and Costello and, and Lou Costello just asking how do you get to you know how do you get to Beagle Street and guys would punch him in the head for mentioning <laughs> Beagle Street and stuff. And I go, they're supposed to be the idiots, but everybody else around him is actually crazy. All he wants to do is you just know how to get a Beagle Street, but it turns into this like surreal existential nightmare of just asking people how to get to Beagle Street. And and I always I felt like organically. I mean, I, I obviously couldn't articulate it, but even as a little kid, I organically felt like, who's crazy exactly? Exact just exactly here, who's crazy? I'm not sure. And that changed everything for me because. I felt like I was crazy even as a little kid. I felt like I was the odd man out all the time for any number of reasons. But I would see comedy and I would go, maybe I'm not the crazy one. Or maybe they're just as crazy as I am, just a different crazy than I am. Like, what what the hell's going on here? It's shifted so much. I mean, the Marx Brothers were huge for me to sit back and go, 
I'm not sure what crazy is. I'm yeah. going to stop assuming that I'm the crazy one. Maybe I'm not. Maybe they're just as crazy as I am. I, it's huge. It is huge. It's huge. And you're like, <laughs> what am I feeling? I know I'm not feeling sad, you know? Yeah. It, and that would be like you were talking about, you know, having the fight with your boss that you couldn't yeah. have, in, you know, yourself. Yeah. And then, correct me if I'm wrong, but I bet you got into a situation with your boss where in your head you just played what, what that oh, scene yeah. was about and you just go, okay, that's all I need. I don't need to say it. <laughs> I just need to think it and let it have its life, and now I'm going to deal with the real world. And then there's these beautiful <laughs> moments, these absolute beautiful moments where the comedy gods, like, <laughs> give you just a little, like, like glimpse of it when you're really down, you yeah, know? Yeah, yeah. Um, uh, I'll, uh, I'll go right in on this. This was, uh, I remember there's a, there was this girl who I just didn't like, and we just <laughs> didn't get along, right? And it, I had the misfortune of we were walking too close together, to uh, not acknowledge each other's uh, presence. And she was uh, with her new boyfriend. And she started, um, like, talking, bragging, you know, like, oh, this is my new job and my new boyfriend. And, and I felt this big when, at the end of it, I just was like, oh, okay, well, great, you know? And then I remember feeling so bad about it. And then I was like... Oh, yeah, you have herpes. That new job? <laughs> you got to go to it with herpes. Your new clothes underneath, there's herpes. Your new boyfriend, guess what? Your new girlfriend has herpes. And it was just this it was a great moment. <laughs> yeah, truth truth, truth can hurt or can be hilarious. Yeah. You know, I had an, uh, an interesting conversation with George Wallace once. I don't know if you guys have ever seen George Wallace. Oh, yeah, of course. Even... One of a kind. I mean, what he does to an audience, very few people do. I mean, he, he first of all, you know, he's huge, and he spreads his arms, and it just, just he just embraces the audience, and and he's just so big and 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 lovable and and funny and goofy and playful and everything. And I've always admired. We used to be very very close, and I've always admired what he did as a comedian. I, I was once having a conversation with this, and I was like, George, like, what is it that you want when you get up on that stage i go like, like like why are you doing this is it is it an ego thing a money thing is it a like like what, what do you want when you get up on a stage and he's like i everybody has a rough life people spend their hard-earned money to come here and see a show and he goes and you know what else he goes this group of people will never happen again this group of people will never all be in the same room at the same time and he goes i feel that's a special moment and I want to make that special for everybody I want everybody to forget their problems for a little while to all have fun laugh at the same things they're all getting you know we live in a world full of controversy and conflict you get everybody just sort of laughing at he, at the same thing together and he says, that's it I just want good vibes for the audience to walk out just just you know having smiled and enjoyed themselves as part of this particular community here tonight and it, and it dawned on me, and I said, that's the difference between you and me. Said, what are you talking about? I go, to me, the greatest thing is for everybody to have a fight on the car ride home. That's, that's what I like. Hilarious. I like people to argue about the shit on the ride home. And again, I, I'm trying not to judge it, but that really, like the idea that, that people would argue about some stuff on the way home makes it fascinating to me because that's what I love. Yeah, the conflict that. That's uh, what I love. It's people <laughs> actually talking about shit. Now, I'll see show, like I've seen shows where I, I go, I would watch the Colbert show and, and sit there and talk with, you know, watch it with friends or something and sit there and just the conversations would go on and on about some of the, you know, 
some of the points he made and stuff like that. And uh, that's what I love. That's fucking hilarious. But yeah, and then, you know, I, the, there are times where I'm just like, God, I wish I, 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 wish I felt the way George did. <laughs> but no, because you, you know what's crazy is, Every, like I said, we need these different voices. If you felt yes, the way George did, yes. Paul Provenza's just, voice wouldn't exist. It's just but we need like that voice. Every other art form, you need yeah. all. The, uh, everybody's got to express themselves, and, yeah. the, and and every person who expresses themselves in the most singular, individual, personal way reaches a million people. That's that's true. That's how we expand. That's how you really. Uh, yeah, and it's like it's like you know, no matter the more specific you get the more universal it becomes. It's the weirdest thing. Yeah, it's absurd. There's a lot of weird paradoxes in comedy. Here's one of the really difficult ones. In order to be a great, great comedian, right, the audience has to love you and relate to you and connect with you in some way, right? So they're key. Yeah. Right? But in order to be a great comedian, you got to not give a shit what anybody thinks. And it's an existential dilemma every day. That's the real challenge of being a great comedian. It's really tough. It's fucking crazy. See, you, you, that needs to be on a poster. You, you've, uh, you've blown Marty's mind. Yeah. Yeah, no, I can't thank you enough. As I said, this is just a, a master class. When the, I think the most profound I, thing that you said... That's you a little disturbing, but go ahead. <laughs> you, uh, you articulated this correlation between um, mu- how music is beloved and how comedy is becoming beloved, and that's something that I've always felt. Like, I remember... Uh, when I got to go to JFL 42 and I was doing uh, live to airs at the Shapiro show and in between takes and everybody was around and stuff and, and I was like, Com- comedians are the new rock stars, you know? Like Nick Thune was sitting there, Ian Edwards there. I'm like, comedians are the new rock stars and I, like I think it's that same. I don't, I, I, don't, I don't think that's the case. It's not that they're new rock stars. You know what they are? Every comedian now is an, an indie band. Ah, there we go. That's a much... Do you get the difference? Yeah. It's a little bit of a nuance, but it's not, yeah. you know, rock star. It's like, hey, man, we got our hardcore f- hardcore fans that are going to buy our album, no matter, you know, when yeah. it comes out, and they're going to come and see us live, and they're going to support us, and they're going to be there. You don't even have to necessarily be a star. You just get, you know, enough people to connect with you, and you keep doing it forever. Have you ever had to go on stage on a, on a day, a really dark day, and how did going on stage help? Yeah, uh, sure. Yeah, I remember going from my father's funeral to uh, the improv and getting on stage to talk about whatever I needed to talk about. I think I actually did some some material about it at the time, but but that wasn't even necessary. Just to go up and just make the audience laugh about stuff that maybe wasn't even about that was was therapeutic. Just because it made me feel like uh, this this is another home that I have. Yeah. That's I can handle everything differently than I have to handle in the rest of my life. Yeah, yeah, for sure. I've had moments like that. Um, comes and goes. I mean, there were times when when the, the darkness I was experiencing really got in the way, and and I couldn't, I, I couldn't make the transition to communicating with an audience. Yeah, yeah. It's fucking weird. It's weird. It's <laughs> difficult too, because if you look at it. Um, like with Robin Williams, uh, what happened here, I remember people who are not really into comedy kept telling me was, oh, you're a comedian. Oh, you guys are really depressed. I saw what happened to Robin Williams. You all, you all do comedy to mask that you're depressed and you want to kill yourselves. Uh, that's very, very black and white. That's not, that's not how it works. I, I actually think it's counterintuitive. I yeah. think that, that you, if you were to really, I, I think any depression or angst that a comedian suffers 
is just the human condition. I think the difference is it seems like it's different because we wear it on our sleeves. Yeah. You know, instead of hiding it away and pretending like it doesn't exist, we ride it into the sunset. So I, I think it's it seems like comedians are that's a comedian thing, but it's not. It's a human thing. I think there are dentists and plumbers and lawyers and, and we're teachers. talking about it. Yeah, we're yeah, talking that's about what it saying. when other we, people we, we aren't. Just put up front, right? Yeah. What and happens when someone starts to fetishize it though? Fetishize comedy? No, no. Fetishize? fetishize their own sadness for the purpose Oof. of their bit. You know, know, just like when someone's like, "Oh, I did it for the bit," right? They start to fetishize their own sadness. But is it authentic sadness, or is it something they created? For ah, a bit? that's it's that's what I mean. Is it's a fetish for that that place of? But I, is but is it a real thing for them? Is it is it like like Maria Bamford is is when you say fetishize it, do you mean just sort of? Put it out there and make and 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 make what currency I mean is, of it, but like in Maria Bamford's case, it's it's authentic. Yeah, it's not manufactured. It's not manufactured. So no, no, Maria Bamford is articulating. In fact, I would say that she's the opposite of fetishizing. Okay, so okay. you are right? okay. because so her comedy just clarifying is terms. to um, you know what I mean is to kind of uh, kick up at. At her mental. Like, Listen, I remember. Me, I remember people who weren't even married doing mother-in-law jokes. So that's uh, always happened. Yeah, the, yeah, that's the manufactured part. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, the, yeah, oh. yeah. But uh, what I mean is, is when somebody starts to choose to be sad to cultivate this that exact idea that you're saying, this like you know, I'm I'm a brooding comedian. No, uh, I don't like. You could normally smell it, the fakeness. Yeah, you know exactly what I'm talking well, yeah, about, right? Well, I, I know. Well, that's where you get your that. wannabe Bill Hicks's exactly. and your wannabe Priors. And you could and tell your right away. Kinnison's. Yeah. You, I, I don't like it. I personally, even as a Greek, right, people, I don't do uh, like ethnic comedy, right? I don't. And there's a lot of money to be made in it. And yeah, there's a big Greek there is. comic yes, who, there is. who I opened for who even asked me, he says, hey, how come you don't do uh, like ethnic stuff? You know, you could make a lot of money going on the road. Because I don't feel it. I don't, it's not, I like talking about my life, politics. I can't go on stage, talk about the price of feta, and think it's hilarious. I personally don't find that shit funny. I don't. So I can't make it funny for other people. But right. I want to tell them about me and my, you know, my, my ex and, and, you know, politics and what's happening right now and how I'm feeling if I'm sad about this. That, to me, it'll resonate in my head and right. I'll laugh. Right. And hopefully you'll laugh. But to go up there and just be like, oh, Greek, I have a long, complicated name. And so, that hacky shit, I can't. I can never do it. No matter how much you pay me, you know, at one point maybe I'll sell out if it's good enough money for a bit. But it, or I won't a good be happy. Joke. Good enough joke, but I won't be happy doing that. I can't. I don't find it. Uh, I don't find it funny. A lot of people ask me after shows, "Hey, how yeah, come you don't talk about being Greek?" It's minimizing. It's sh- it, 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 it's it's shallow. Although your I, Greek I, you know, breakfast joke I mean, is real good. Mm-hmm. Your Greek breakfast joke is real. Yeah, good. that's a good joke. Yeah. The Greek breakfast, but that's uh, a shot on. Um, I guess Italians kind of relate to it as well. Yeah, right? exactly. But and, and that's a ten second thing. Yeah, that's a small that I throw out there. I can't do the whole stereotypical. Uh, it's just not. Yeah. I don't have it in me. And, I don't and have the it in thing me. I'm not is, even is, sure what the stereotypes of Greeks is. What, uh, what is it? Uh, is there a stereotype? Well, basically, there well, there's, there's, like, there's, there's the butt sex. There's the butt there's sex, the, right. You can make fun of that, but I, I mean, the, 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 like the ethnic uh, comedians that do Greek jokes right now, they all talk about stuff that you could apply to any. Uh, right. They'll be right. like, so uh, my grandma used to chase me around with, the, you know, with her slippers, and she used to try to hit me and stuff like that, but they'll make it so hacky, and, so, and they're all saying the same thing. You don't have your own voice. A Greek comedian A is the same as Greek comedian B. One's talking about his aunt, the other one's talking about his grandmother. You right, know, right, or uh, yogurt. Right. What's the deal with yogurt and stupid shit like that? When I would speak about being Greek, I talk about the economy a lot. Talked about Germany. And do you uh, identify more as Greek or as Canadian? Greek, Greek. 
I identify more as Greek, but my comedy when I speak is more, uh, it's not even Canadian, it's more American. It's more, I, I'm more in tune with American comedians because that's who I grew up watching. Uh, the voices I had in my head growing up, uh, I was watching, let's say, Eddie Murphy's special. Uh, I was looking back, I was looking at Richard Pryor's stuff. That's the kind of, George Carlin, that's what I grew up with in my head. Those were the voices that I respected. Right? right, so I grew up talking like that. So when I first started getting on stage, and I wasn't good, right? When I was an open mic, I wasn't uh, anything to behold. But the voice that was coming out of me was very much that uh, let's talk to the people, uh, uh, more of an American comedy concept. Whereas here, I find real Cana- a lot of Canadian comedians do a lot more um, slapsticky and more. Uh, there's a better rhythm to them than what I do. M- mine is just a man talking into a mic. They have a much better, and they're better at sketch than I am and all that stuff. But I don't have that rhythm. My rhythm is more based on my feelings. And, oh, I can't believe that just came out of his mouth. That's what I, I draw from, right? That's where my voice comes from. It has nothing to do with being Greek because my comedy isn't based on that. You, I, you could take my jokes and apply them to anybody else yeah. in any major city in North America, and they'll work, right? And it has nothing to do with being Canadian either because I don't have that same sensibility that a lot of the Canadian acts have, which I wish I did, yeah. that more happy-go-lucky and... The way they stick things together. Yeah. Mine is very. You've seen me on stage. You yeah. know how it is. It's uh. Well, that's one of the things that yeah. I loved about Kamal is that right from the beginning he he said I want to be a comedian. I don't want to be a Pakistani comedian or yeah. a Muslim comedian or whatever. You know, and and uh, um, he studiously avoided even referring to it most of the time. Now he's a little bit. He's found a little more balance with it. Where if it relates to some story he wants to tell, and now he actually has some because. Since Trump came in, he's had some interactions where that kind of is key to the story. Yeah. Uh, so, you know, he's more comfortable with it in the right contexts now. But I found it really, really beautiful to watch him because that was like, you know, I'm trying to break in in comedy. I'm trying to become a comedian in this new country I live in. I'm trying to get into show business, blah, 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 blah. And here's this thing that would be so easy for him to do that would make his path so much simpler and easier, and he just wanted no part of it. And I yeah. always had a tremendous amount of respect for him. And he's not known as... He's known as Kamal. Yeah, he's and not known as a Pakistani When you see his stand-up, it has nothing to nothing do with... Nothing to do with it. No. And I love that. Here, I've gone shit for... I've gone, you, you're so dumb. Do you know what kind of rooms you could be doing uh, all across? Yeah, I'm sure he had to do with a lot of too. I can't, I, I can't. I've tried to even sit at a table and think about jokes like that. I'm like, I can't fucking... That's insane. I'm going to lose respect for myself. I'm going to go up there and talk about the price of feta and like, what am I... It's so stupid. My name is long... Uh, uh, were you were born in Greece? No, I was born here. Were you born here? Yeah, I was born in Montreal in a very strong mm-hmm. subculture, right. a bunch of Greek right. subculture. So where I love Canada. It's, it's a weird paradox because growing up here, um, you feel Canadian, but you mostly feel Greek if you're, if you're Greek. Same thing with Italians. Well, that's what it was like, yeah, growing up in New York, an Italian family. It was like, you know, I, I, don't, I don't have the immigrant experience. I mean, American, but, uh, you know, yeah, we ate the cliche italian food yeah. and we had the cliche italian family dinners and all that stuff was real but that's just what it was like growing up in my house it has nothing to do with my identity that's culturally because i was so influenced by american culture and that's right. that's where that love comes from and north also american north american but yeah. very much uh, american comedians uh-huh. and i don't know what it was it mostly was black comedians that really resonated with me i was like fuck yeah I see, because there was also pr- here. It was very um, when I was growing up, especially in high school. Th- it was weird racism because you would have the French um, like teachers and were very racist against the Greeks, the Italians. Really? So yeah, and you didn't have 
what are you going to say? Because because to everybody else, it just seemed like white people, right? Right, right. They didn't see the segregation, whereas here right. they would show it. Right. So the only place that I would find that kind of would be black comedians who would talk about their experiences in the States. As other. As other. Right. And I would feel this and be like, I know exactly what the fuck he's talking about. I know where he's coming from. And it would resonate with me. Right. So then I'd be like, oh, they're making fun of it. They're, they're finding humor in it, right? And me and my friends growing up, everybody around me I thought was even funnier than I was, right? All my friends, they just didn't want to do stand-up. But they were all 10 times funnier than I was. Great at just being quick and witty. And they, if they would sit down and write jokes, killer comedians. They just, it wasn't for them, right? Right. And I grew up in that where we were trying to make stuff funny. And I was being influenced so much by um, these comedians in the States that were just talk, just pouring their heart out there and making it hilarious. That it influenced me so much that my c- comedy now, I can't retract it and go back and be this stereotypical I'm a big Greek guy type of thing. I, I can't do it. It's not in me. And right. I don't find it funny personally because I don't feel like I'm saying anything. I've seen it being done. Right. And I, I think there's people that could do it way better than I can to do that stereotypical. And you'll, if you like that kind of stuff, if you like to go there and have people agree with you, like, isn't it funny that our Greek word for this is the same English word as this? And people will love that. You're going to be way better at it than I am. For myself, what I'm trying to get out of comedy and, and just expressing myself on stage um, I find it in a way different place, and it's so Americanized. It's so uh, pouring your heart and soul out, regardless of what you are. Mm-hmm. But just sharing that difference and putting it out there, being like, "Hey, look, I'm different too. You're different too. You know what that makes us? The fucking same thing." You know what? Yeah. I think that's that's the real, uh, th- that's the place to be. I think is that you know what? Unless you're a rich, powerful was, motherfucker, we are all other same. together. Yep. And all the identity politics and everything that's going on is all just to keep us fighting amongst ourselves. That's because if we all stop fighting amongst ourselves and went after the people who are really fucking the world up, it would be disaster for them. That's, that's the exactly problem. It. Is that we are all other. Unless you're a rich, powerful motherfucker, we are other. And, and that and, is and such everything a small. Else is some, it's some bizarre illusion that was created. Yep. Uh, and and pump down our our throats, but because it, if it was real, if it wasn't an illusion, I wouldn't be able to relate to to Eddie Murphy's jokes or Tracy Morgan stuff, and really you wouldn't be able to relate yeah. if it if it was true. But that illusion is just an illusion. The reason you know it yeah. is because you can relate to that stuff. Why? Because it speaks to your sensibilities. Because you're the same fucking thing. Yeah, you're the same. Fucking, the rest is bullshit. But they they pour it down your throat to make you think it's real, and that's why I think. It ties into a lot of this political correctness growing up now with, with these college students. Which is a big offshoot of identity politics. They're fed which into is, that which since is they're young. divide and conquer in a lot of ways. And they think it's real. They think, did I, I didn't get to tell you this. I was going to hear McGill. So they booked me to do a, um, a comedy a 10 minute set. And I was like, are you sure? Like, you guys want me? Like, have you ever heard of my stuff? <laughs> uh, 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 I'm like, no, it'll be fine. I show up there and do they have... Do that feta stuff. We love that, the feta exactly. stuff. Exactly. I don't have any feta jokes. I'm like, no, no, we've heard good things. We heard you... I, yeah, as a club comic, I don't know if I could do this, but I went and did it because it, it was a buddy of mine that was organizing it, right. so I'm not right. going to... I show up and they have outside of the room uh, a pyramid, a, a triangle, and it goes, the triangle of acceptance, some shit like that. Basically, what you can't talk about. Literally everything. Gender, sex, this and that. And I laugh. I go... In two, the, my first two minutes, I'm gonna address all this shit, and you guys are gonna be pissed. And they're like, "No, no, try and keep it, uh, you know, PC. Try and keep it PC, Pantelis." I get up there, and the first thing I say is, uh, "You know that pyramid that this is a safe zone or whatever. For the next ten minutes, this is the most unsafe place for you to be. If anybody wants to walk out right now, it would be the smart thing." Two people, two Asian students, got up and walked out. The rest stayed. Had a great fucking time, right? That's the irony. A great fucking time. But if those two had stayed, I guarantee you they would have made it awkward. They would have made it awkward for other people. And then I would have heard about it. 
Melbourne and San Francisco are the two weirdest audiences, uh, I, I think, anywhere. Uh, they're both very similar. They're both very PC, and, and it's that thing where everybody looks at everybody else. And says, Is that. it okay to laugh? Is it okay to laugh? Whatever. And it's really awkward and uncomfortable. But here's the funny thing. If you push through it, they fucking love it. Is, fucking but isn't that insane, it. though? Isn't that insane? That's what I'm saying. You, once you break through, you see the real they them. love it. You see yeah. the real fucking person. Yeah, but you got to somehow make it okay. Yeah, that permission thing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, a lot. I want, before we bounce, I want you guys to plug your uh, your Twitters, your websites. Like, Paul, where, where's everybody going to find you? Where are they going to follow you? Uh, I'm going to be plugging Marty. Mm-hmm. Uh, I just love that expression. <laughs> <laughs> plugging shit. It's just a great. It's just a, let me plug that. Hey, come here. I'm going to plug you so good. Yeah, it's such uh, a, like a danger field type of um, thing. Set list at the outdoor stage uh, tonight and tomorrow night at 9, Saturday at 7. I'll be hosting that show with great lineups every night. And that, that's, do you know about set list? Yeah, yeah, of course. Yeah, we write a set list. The comic has to improvise it's it. hilarious. I've it? Never, ha- never having seen it. Yeah, the audience at the outdoor stage... They're, they're a little confused about things, but they get on board. It, was, it turned out great last night. But it's funny because, because it's, just, it's a free show, and people just wander in, and they don't necessarily know what, what they're, they're seeing. Get. So that's a really fun part of it, too. Uh, so set list. And then uh, I'm doing a live green room show on Saturday night at 9.30 at the Maison is, Theater. Is that going to be taped? Nope. Fuck. I know, I know. Because, like I said, the green room's done so much. There's so many good little segments I from know. the, the if culturally. A, if somebody has a network, call me. Seriously, I don't know why we're not having the green room back on air. Yeah, we need it. Uh, maybe not. I don't know if Showtime still wants to do this kind of stuff. But there's so many platforms right now. Even comedy. Yeah. Why is not comedy know who's picking this up? Suck, my friend. I've tried. I've sucked them all. I'm gonna run something by you after this show. All right. Think if it's just crazy in my head, Marty. What about your site? Um, yeah, so my site is uh, The Young Modern, uh, Y-O-U-N-G-E, Modern, and my hashtag is Young Modern Laughs, and it's just all things comedy, how I feel about comedy. Uh, young as uh, in Young Street? Yeah, uh, what it is, it's an amalgamation of the two. Oh, nice. Right? Um, it's uh, from Young, like, uh, like Young Street, and I liked how uh, rappers would call themselves Young. Young Money. Um, I, it also came out of the fact that my real last name is uh, Cotter, and it was so, uh, I didn't like how, if I say it right now, Cotter, and uh, I didn't like how they say Omar Cotter, and it sounds the same. Oh. So I wanted to be different than that, especially for a comedy blogger. So, uh, and so, yeah, I just came up with Young. So hashtag Young Modern Laughs and all good things. Marty Young, Paul Provenza. Thank you, guys. Thank, Thank you. Thank you, Pantelli.